Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, you guys, I'm so glad you're here today. I uh, have a special topic for you, um, one that is very near and dear to my heart. I have been working for a number of years looking at the models models that we use to treat partners and spouses of addicts, and in particular, spouses and loved ones of sex addicts. And I have always found uh, the codependency model to be lacking for a variety of reasons. And watching what's been happening in my field and watching what's happening in the drug and alcohol field, I've just really been inspired by some new ways to look at the support and treatment of partners and loved ones of addicts in general and sex addicts in particular. So I invited my dear friend and coworker, Tammy. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Rob. To join and help me answer some questions about pro-dependence. I will say that there is a book coming out called Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, and the book will be out in September, probably about mid-September. And to be very honest, I've done my PhD dissertation on the topic of codependency so and partners issues. So you'll hear me talk about this a lot. I've certainly worked with sex addicts for a whole bunch of years, which means I've always ended up working with betrayed and hurting partners. And I have a few things to say about them. So I'm looking forward to this uh, particular interview. And Tammy, you are my interviewer. I look forward to this. So I'm going to start with a question. Why did you write Prodependence? Well, Prodependence really came out of the sex addiction field because in the beginning, and I would say maybe for the first 10 years that I was in practice, which is like 91 through 2001, we treated partners of sex addicts using the same model that we used for alcohol and drug addiction. And that is a model of codependency. And the model of codependency really speaks to not just what's going on with the addict, but there's a lot of focus in that model on the partner themselves. Um, There's an assumption in the codependency model that some of their distress, the partner's distress, some of the partner's actions, their anger, their feeling out of control, a lot of what's going on with them doesn't just have to do with what the sex addict or the addict in their life is doing, but actually has to do with their own early life experiences. So codependency really says that the way I grew up and the relationships I grew up in are unresolved. And when I move into a relationship with an addict, um, a dysfunctional person like the dysfunctional people I grew up with, I'm going to be working out my childhood issues with this husband or wife in the same way that they were unresolved in childhood. Now I'm repeating those issues with my dysfunctional spouse. And you know, Tammy, I just never, partners don't like this. <laughs> That's the number one reason why I looked for another model, because I understand that 
when you are facing your spouse who has slept with, you know, 20 prostitutes this year and has been looking at porn three hours uh, a day and is also having an affair, there is no way on, on God's earth that you can blame a spouse. A spouse cannot be, nor will they ever be, responsible for any behavior that an addict does. There is an assumption in the models that we've been working with that the partner, the loved one, the caretaker, the caregiver is somehow in part responsible for maintaining the addiction. And I got to tell you, as an addict and knowing a few addicts and working with a few addicts, we make our own decisions. We're pretty strong-minded people. You can, you know, if we were married, Tammy, you could yell at me, you could scream at me, we could stop having sex, you could gain 100 pounds. And there's a lot of things I can do, but go out and start acting out sexually. That decision is mine. I could leave you, I could have uh, start therapy, I could start a new business, I could spend more time with the kids. There are a lot of things I can do when I'm not happy with my relationship other than start drinking and using or start sexing. So to me, the whole notion that a partner should be in any way assigned responsibility for the actions of the addict in the early stages of treatment is absurd. And I think what it does is it makes partners feel bad. You know, when I think about drugs and alcohol, for example, you know, I can't imagine how, let's say, a wife of 15 years who's watched her husband go down the drain with alcohol and he's now lost three jobs and he's had two DUIs and he's not allowed to pick up the kids anymore because he picked them up drunk. Meanwhile, she is working three jobs and has gained 50 pounds and has no social life or no life of her own because she's desperately trying to rescue and save the family she loves. I don't understand how you can accuse that person of having something wrong with them. What pro-dependence says and what I believe is that every action a partner or a loved one takes, whether it's nagging, enabling, rescuing, all those nasty words we have for things partners do, that all of that is acted out out of love. And that if I love you and we're in a committed relationship and you start to fail, I will do anything to help save you because I love you and because we're connected and we are attached and you are my primary bond or you and I are a bond with these children, et cetera. So, you know, of course I'm going to do everything I can, even if it isn't well advised or the right thing to do to try to help save, rescue, and bring you back into the fold and stop your drinking and using or sexing and, you know, bring you back to being the partner I hope you would be. And I just don't see how you can blame or pathologize a partner for that. And, and that's why I came up with a new model. Okay. So I hear you saying that blaming a partner or spouse and making them feel bad can be a result of a codependency model. So there are some issues with the codependency model. What do you see as the major difference between codependency and prodependency? Well, codependency, first of all, codependency is a model that was invented 35 years ago. It came out of the 1980s and a whole bunch of stuff that was going on in the 1980s that had to do with the therapy field, that had to do with feminism, that had to do with the family disease of addiction and systems theory. There are a lot of reasons why codependency evolved the way it did and became such a big pop culture issue. And I think you are old enough to remember, Tammy. I remember saying to people, are you a co? I think I'm a co. Who's a co? Absolutely. <laughs> Like this whole idea of over-nurturing, over-helping, over-being too dependent became uh, a negative. And so part of the reason I wrote this, and I'll get back to your question in a second, is I don't believe that dependency is a bad thing. I think dependency is a good thing. I think that we lean into the people we love, we support them, and we help them where they're vulnerable, and they help us where we're vulnerable, and we stand up for each other, and we do fill in each other's weaknesses, and we do support each other's strengths. And that's what prodependence is overall. It's the kind and nature of relationships where we're attached, where one fills in and supports the other naturally. So 
in that scenario, when one partner fails, you know, they're, they, they're drinking or they're sexing, they stop showing up for things. They start hurting the family. They stop being a healthy, involved member of the family. Well, of course, everybody's going to react to that and everyone's going to act a little crazy and everyone's going to try to make it better. What happened though with codependency is that enabling, rescuing, seeing myself as a victim of an addict's behavior, that all became passe. And the way that co-addiction asked partners and loved ones to look at their behavior and themselves is you have to look at your own history and the way you were brought up and the way you respond to crises and what, what is missing inside of you that you are now trying to get from this broken partner. Because you have to look at yourself before you can really look at your partner who's drinking or sexing or whatever. And I just think that's ridiculous. I think that, and I'll tell you why. Partners of addicts are in crisis by definition. They are in a crisis. And everything that I've been taught as a therapist says that when someone comes to you in a crisis, you give them about four things and nothing more because it's all they can chew on. People who are in a crisis need support, they need direction, they need education, and they need hope. Um, they don't need, nor do they feel comfortable with, nor do they want to look at their own past, their own history, their own trauma issues. So when I have the wife of a sex addict or the spouse or partner or loved one of a sex addict in the office, they are freaked out about what's going on in their relationship. But they're also grieving. You know, if your partner fails, if your partner is having affairs, if your partner is sleeping with other people, if your partner or loved one or part husband is drinking like a fish, there's a loss there. You know, you have lost that person that you thought you had. And here's the deal. When we have losses, when we grieve, we already understand that there are different stages that people go through when they're depressed or experiencing grief. There's anger and denial and all that stuff. But one of them that is not talked about nearly enough, I believe, is remorse. And you know, Tammy, that if I said to you, you know, if you had a loss, like your husband passed away or your dog passed away or, or a good friend, we all, it's a part of human nature to think, oh, I wish I'd said this to him or I wish we'd had that moment. You know what I mean? Yes. So we regret when we have grief, when we lose someone, we have regrets, we have remorse. It's a part of the process. We look at ourselves and we say, gosh, I wish this had happened or that had happened while they were still here. So guess what? If grief brings up remorse, then if your husband or wife is drinking or sexing like a fish, you're also going to feel like, oh, gee, maybe if I'd been thinner, maybe I'd been more attractive, maybe I'd been more available, maybe, maybe, maybe. And so I already know that a spouse or a partner of an addict is coming into my office grieving the loss of the relationship they had. And I already know that a part of them, even if they don't acknowledge it, is saying to themselves, what part do I have in this? And that is a feeling of obligation and guilt and responsibility that I do not want to encourage in a partner. I want a spouse to understand that, yeah, you were victimized by this situation and you didn't get involved with this person hoping that they would have affairs or believing that they were going to cheat or drink on you. And so, yeah, your life is a mess now because this person is a mess and you are deeply attached to them. So when this person you love begins to become a life trauma unto themselves, you're going to get traumatized and you're going to be in grief. So why, when you come to my office as the spouse of a partner of a sex and love addict or a porn addict or even an alcoholic, why would I want you to feel bad about your behavior when you're the one who's been working three jobs? <laughs> you're the one who's been... There's an emphasis in codependency on looking at the partner's part. And oftentimes we'll say to the partner, well, you worked three jobs, but really you were enabling. Like what if your alcoholic partner or your sex addict partner was doing more? You're keeping them from doing more by overcompensating and doing things they themselves could do. And I think that's bullshit. I think the reality is, is that 
partners are stepping in and helping because who's going to take care of this family? Who's going to take care of these loved ones? Who's going to take care of our relationship? Because the person who's supposed to be doing it with me has failed. And of course, I'm going to naturally step up and do whatever I can, useful or not useful, to try to help this person. So maybe my loving looks inadequate as a partner. Maybe my loving looks like enabling. Maybe my loving looks like something that wouldn't help my partner. Let me give you an example. I've worked with wives of alcoholics who used to bring a bottle home every other night to their alcoholic husband. Now, the reason they did that was because they didn't want him going out to the bar and drinking. They didn't want him getting in the car and drinking. So, And they knew he was going to drink. So they figured, listen, if he drinks at home, at least we don't have to deal with a DUI or an arrest. Now, from the perspective of an addiction therapist, that spouse is enabling. They are supporting that person's drinking. From my perspective, that spouse is trying to keep their family safe, trying to protect their loved one or themselves from further harm. And since they can't get the person to stop drinking themselves, they're going to do the next best thing, which is look at safety. I think that's a good thing. Not enabling, but keeping the family from falling further apart. So pro-dependence, pro-dependence, encouraging dependency, nurturing dependency, the idea that dependency is a good thing, that as much as our culture encourages independence, Tammy, what is the reality? Who does better at work? Who does better in, re- in life? Who is more creative? Who is more secure? Who lives longer? It's the person who's in a relationship with someone. That's a fact. So why would I want to separate the relationship and look for the bad parts in each person? Uh, I just don't understand the concept. I, I mean, I do understand it from the perspective of the people who wrote about codependency in the 80s, because I understand what they were trying to get across and what they believed. I just don't agree. I, and, and I'll give you one more example. I have worked with a lot of partners, many, many over the years. And when we used to use the codependency model in sex addiction treatment up until about 10 or 12 years ago, I had partners who would say, you want me to look at myself? You want me to look at me? Hey, I'm the one who's been rescuing and saving and taking care of this family and I'm exhausted. I don't even have a life I've been doing so much to try to take care of these people that I love. And you're telling me that I'm a problem for having taken care of them while my spouse is out there, you know, sexing, using, drinking and being a total loser. I think I'm the hero of this family, not part of the problem. And in the early stages of treatment, the first 90 days or so, I agree with them. I think it's important that, that, that we acknowledge, look, when, a, when the spouse of a partner of a love addict or a sex addict or an alcoholic or drug addict walks into my office, the first thing I want to do is get out on my knees and give them a big hug and say, hey, I am so impressed with what a great job you've been doing of trying to keep your family together. What a loving, giving, caring person you are, even though you suffered as a result. Now, instead of, as in codependency, let's look at what you've been doing wrong or what's wrong with you because you've been doing these things. What I want to say to them is, how can we help you help this family more effectively? How can I help your love be more effective? Because I think in part what codependency does, it pathologizes the love. It makes wrong. It makes broken. It implies brokenness to the love that a partner is giving to, a, to an active addict. And I would call that love heroism. And who wouldn't want to save and rescue the person they love from what seems to be a pretty swift downhill slope for the marriage and for us? So I want to celebrate those partners because they have done everything they can to try to help that person stop drinking and using, stop sexing or whatever. And even if it came in the form of rescuing, enabling, nagging, yelling, you know, things that I wouldn't necessarily encourage someone to do, what I would say to them is, you know, you've loved the best you can and let me teach you how to do it better. I think the last thing I'll say, Tim, before I ask you another question is, um, I don't think any one of us grow up learning how to love 
into a house on fire. You know, nobody taught me how to love an alcoholic or a drug addict. I don't think any of us are taught that. And so what would be normal or healthy loving for a partner will run off the rails when that partner runs off the rails. You're going to follow them into the gully <laughs> trying to pull them out. But that doesn't mean you're actively trying to push them in the gully or you're trying to get in there together with them or you're just trying to pull them out. And there is no reason to blame someone for doing that. Okay. So do you think that codependence treatment as a trauma-based model can actually be counterproductive when working with loved ones of addicts? That's a really good question because what you're asking is the essence of codependency. And the essence of codependency is a trauma-based model, meaning, and it's a deficit-based model. And let me tell you what that means. It says to the partner of a drug addict, an alcoholic, a sex addict, a gambler, whatever, you know, um, you have some problems in the way you love. And the way you've, loving, you've been loving this addict is problematic. And as a result, they're not getting better. So we need you to back off, to detach, to set up a whole bunch of boundaries and to look at your part because clearly you're acting out something in this distress you're having that is from your past. And that's just not how we look at it in pro-dependence. What, what I would say to that partner is your family's falling apart. You're in trauma. Forget about your past. You're in trauma right now. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote a note on a, um, a lecture I was giving about this. And I said, trauma, trauma, where's the trauma in that lecture? Because I know that therapists are looking for that. And we know that early trauma does in many people precipitate addiction. But that doesn't mean it precipitates addiction in a partner. Tammy, don't you think there are people who marry addicts of all, of all kinds who don't necessarily have a trauma history? I do. Aren't there people who just fall in love with someone and they, for whatever reasons, don't, you know? So why would we say that everyone who's in a relationship with an addict or an alcoholic must have some kind of trauma history that they are acting out in this relationship and making the problem worse? What I would say is if someone does have a trauma history and they tend to do some kind of repetition of that, that they're going to do it when they're going through any life trauma. And since the addict, an active addict in your life is a life trauma, you may act in ways that are less than helpful or whatever, but so what? Your goal is to save your relationship. Your goal is to bring it back to health. And um, even if you're acting in ways that are less than productive, I'm not going to criticize that. I'm going to say, how can we make your love more productive? Let me just say one more thing about that. So in answer to your question, Tammy, prodependence is not a trauma-based model. Codependence is a trauma-based deficit model. It says, What's, what did you not get in childhood that you are now acting out during the trauma you're experiencing with this addict? Prodependence says it doesn't really matter whether you had trauma or not. Right now you're in a trauma. You're, you're living with an active addict and of course you're a mess. Of course you're going to be doing things that may or may not be helpful, but who wouldn't? Because nobody knows how to love someone in a house on fire. So let us support and teach you how to love this person in a way because they're broken, in a way that doesn't cause them harm, doesn't cause you harm, doesn't makes the situation better. And here's another way of thinking about it. I think something that fit really well into the codependency movement of the 1980s was a book called Women Who Love Too Much. Remember that one? Yes. Boy, did women like that book. <laughs> In the 1980s, was all about women being independent and separating from their dependency on men. So, you know, this was a feminist era, the first wave. So yeah, and just watch the movie Nine to Five if you want to watch women, what women were dealing with in the workplace in 1980. So um, I mean, codependency made perfect sense. You know, women should be less dependent on men. Women should be more independent. Women shouldn't try to fix and rescue men. Women should self-actualize and be who they are without, you know, it all made sense at the time. It doesn't make sense now. 
Well, I'm going to tag on to what you're saying because I receive so many people asking for help or asking questions and they are blindsided by their loved one's addicted behavior. I just had another email this week where somebody had a long-term marriage, like 20 to 30 years, and this was completely a surprise to them and found out that it had been happening. It was a pornography addiction and masturbation and and she didn't know anything about it Mm -hmm. until now. And so it would be, how could she possibly have picked somebody knowingly if this behavior was hidden? Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. Here's a great, uh, a great, another great way to look at that. For years, you know, I've been saying to partners of sex addicts, you know, you you had nothing to do with this. Like you are a standby victim of this, and you know, as his or her behavior escalated, your loving has changed. You felt uncomfortable. I mean, let's not let's remember, Tammy, what the spouse of an addict is going through when the addiction is active. And that is whether it's an alcoholic, a gambler, a drug addict, a sex addict, whatever it is, when an active addict is living with someone and hiding their behavior, they are manipulating their spouse. They are being seductive with their spouse. They are lying to their spouse. They are gaslighting that spouse. So in other words, if I'm hiding my alcoholism or I'm hiding my sex addiction and you say to me, well, honey, I thought you were going to be home at eight. And I say, I never said that, but I did say it. Um, Every time you bring up an issue, I I thought you were going to pick up the groceries. I was never going to do that. You know, every time you bring up an issue about maybe uh, the time I've spent, the place I was, the promises I've made, and you're right, as my partner, I did say those things. If I'm trying to cover up my disease, my addiction, I'm going to say you were wrong. I never said that. Or the sky is green, not blue. Or the water is brown, not blue. You know, because I want to protect my addiction. I'm not invested as an addict in my partner knowing the truth. If my partner knew the truth, they might leave me, they might be overwhelmed, they might be angry with me, and I might have to stop using or sexing. So what I wanna do is try to fool my partner as long as I can into believing that everything's fine and that we're fine. And as long as they believe that, then I can continue using drinking and sexing. But while I am in the process of trying to convince my partner that everything's fine when it isn't, I'm driving them a little crazy because they will say to me, the sky is up and I'm going to say, no, the sky is down. And they're going to say, didn't you leave for half an hour and you said you were just getting some milk? And I'm not going to say, oh, but I got a whole bunch of other things too. You know, I'm going to protect my disorder, my highly pleasurable access to my addiction over the truth that you're telling me. So when a partner walks into treatment and they have been dealing with an active addict, they are a little bit crazy, but not because necessarily that they had early trauma. You too would be crazy if you lived with a crazy person for a long time who was lying to you, keeping secrets, and telling you that the truth wasn't the truth. You too would begin to doubt yourself. You can't help it. It's what happens when we're really close to someone and they constantly accuse us of, of uh, being too jealous or asking too many questions. Or So we really think that we're too inquisitive or we're too jealous when the reality is this person is, is lying to us and they're trying to get us to believe their version of reality. 
So you take this person who's been being lied to for years, who believes, or at least has tried to believe that what they're being told is true, um, and then they find out none of it was true. I can imagine that that person's going to be pretty disturbed when they walk into my office. I am not going to make any decisions about what might be wrong with them other than the fact that they've been living with a crazy person who's been acting in crazy ways and they can't figure it out. They can't make it better. And they love this person and they're attached to them. So of course they're going to look crazy by definition, but I don't think partners are crazy. I think they're at the effect. Here, here's a great way of thinking about it. My belief about codependency is that it says in essence that a partner, a loved one of an addict is acting out their own stuff because that addict is disappearing, using, unavailable, lying, whatever it is. And what's come up for the partner is that all of their childhood stuff, and now they're kind of projecting onto their husband or wife that they're like the abandoning mom or dad. I mean, it's just very complicated. And I just don't think any of that is real. I think the reality is, you know, if you're a mess, it's because you've been living with an active addict. If you don't know what to do, it's because, well, let's face it, every time you suggested that the addict do something differently, they said no. Or they said, I don't have to, or they say, that's not true. So the state of a partner of an active addict when they walk in my office is not going to be that of a, a stable person who's been loving someone and receiving love. It's someone who's been frustrated at their inability to try to heal their partner, heal their family. Sometimes they're incredibly shocked because of information they didn't know about. Certainly they're going to be angry and scared because there's, they're realizing that a lot has gone on that they were never told, and this is their life. So I have a lot of empathy for partners, and I am the last person, especially under pro-dependence, to try to label or judge the partner. Um, the partner is a victim of that drinking. The partner is a victim. They have been victimized, absolutely, by that person's sexing. They didn't choose it. They didn't want it. They didn't marry into it. But there it is. And so to say a partner is not a victim or they shouldn't think of themselves as victims, again, I don't agree with that. I think you have to start out with, I thought this would be a good situation and it turned into a bad situation and I feel victimized by that. And that is something that feels real to partners. Here's what I want to say, Tammy, is that for too many years, I've worked with partners of addicts who will say, you know, I've done everything I can to try to help, to try to rescue, to try to fix, to try to make this better. And I can't seem to do anything to make it better. And now you're telling me there's something wrong with me? Like, screw you. I'm not going to stay in therapy with someone who tells me there's something wrong with me. I'm not the one who's been sleeping with 300 prostitutes or having affairs or, you know, talk to the person who's been ruining my life. Talk to the person who's been ruining our life because they're the one with the problem. Prodependence says that partners act crazy because who wouldn't act crazy when you're living in a crazy situation? And, who, and, and if you're going to talk about trauma, let's just talk about the trauma ongoing day in and day out of living with an active addict who is not only acting out, but lying, cheating, and gaslighting. That's enough trauma for us to focus on in the first couple of months of treatment. We don't need to look at someone's past. We just need to look at where they're at today. Okay. Do you think a lot of therapists out there have already evolved away from the true codependence trauma-based work, but have lacked the language to express this evolution, perhaps until now, with prodependence? You know, that's a, also a great question. And by the way, guys, I didn't write these questions. Tammy read prodependence, so she, she has figured out some good ones to ask. When codependence was first described in Codependent No More, Beyond Codependency, Women Who Love Too Much... Uh, and all the original books, there are about five of them, they were all written in the 1980s about codependency. And then, by the way, well, let me say that. I think there was a clear model in the 1980s that asked partners to look at themselves and their history and how that fit into what they were dealing with. 
And I actually think that when it was originally thought about that, I truly don't believe that Claudia Black or Pia Melody or any of those folks were trying to make people feel like there was something wrong with them for being with an addict. But that's how it evolved in the culture. You have to understand that there's almost 50 books, 5-0, 50 books that have been written about codependency with the word <laughs> codependency in the title since the 1980s. So whatever that original model was, it's been adapted and readapted and adapted and readapted till it's really kind of unrecognizable today. I bet you people who read pro-dependence therapists or listening to this are going to say, oh, well, that's what I do because they have already naturally evolved or the field has naturally evolved to have a different stance on most addicts' partners than simply blaming them and looking at their past history. I think we have evolved past that. But the problem is, is that the only formal model that therapists have for the treatment of partners of addicts is codependency. And even though it may not still be practiced in the way that it was originally written, a, a model's a model. You know, if you tell me that codependency is a model based on childhood trauma and deficits, then there's no other way you can spin that. <laughs> depression is depression, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy, and codependency is a trauma-based deficit model. That's how it works. So if you're working in a different way as a therapist and you don't consider or aren't interested in looking at a partner of an addict's early trauma, not in the beginning stages of treatment, and you are not really, and you're letting them feel and, and really indulge themselves in that feeling of victimization because they've been hurting for a long time, then you're probably doing pro-dependence treatment and you don't even know it. And this has really fascinated me. You know, Tammy, I've been looking at this issue for a couple of years. And so I talk to therapists all the time and I say, what do you do with partners? And they say codependence. And I say, tell me about that. And then what they tell me, nine times out of 10, has nothing to do with the model that was written in the 1980s. It's adapted, it's changed, it's evolved, it's morphed. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to have a model that's different than the way it was written, you're going to have to have a new model. And I think it's time that we had a non-judgmental, non-labeling, non-pathologizing way of looking at the incredibly loving partners of addicts who hang in there day after day with very difficult circumstances. I think we need a model that validates them, that wraps our arms around them, that encourages their loving. And, you know, do they need to set better boundaries? Sure. Do they need more self-care? Sure. Are the, and this is an important thing to note, are the goals of the codependency model accurate? Not the way it was presented, but the goals of it. The goals of the codependency model for a partner to take better care of themselves, to reach out to other people for help, to not put all, put all of their focus on the addiction to be engaging in more, having more fun, you know, outside of the problem in their relationship. Those are all absolutely accurate goals and codependency was brilliant to bring them to us. The problem is that if you introduce those, those concepts, self-care boundaries, while you're also telling the partner that they themselves are part of the problem, they're not going to hear you. They're only going to hear you if you say, God, you've done such a great job of loving this person. Let me help you love them better. And to answer Robin Norwood, you know, 30 years later, I just want to say this very publicly. I don't think that you can ever love too much. I just don't believe it. And if you can love too much, bring that person over to my house because I want to spend time with them. I want to be around incredibly loving, nurturing people. That makes my day. Now, can you love in a way that is inadequate or a way that is problematic or a way that isn't helping you the particular situation that you're in? Sure. Not everybody knows how to handle difficult situations, no matter how much love they have. But don't tell me the love they're expressing it or any way that they express it is bad, wrong, or a problem. Because I'm going to tell you that love is love and we give it for the best of reasons. And I want to teach people how to love an addict in a way that helps them take care of themselves and the addict. 
And I think we can do that without negatively labeling the partners of addicts. Okay, so you've just talked about improved self-care, better boundaries, and that that would be similar to codependence as well as in prodependence. But you're doing it from a different framework, attachment versus trauma. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Well, a trauma model says that as a partner, you're you're not seeing things clearly. You're kind of broken. You're acting, you know, this this problem with your spouse has evoked all the problems from your past and you're acting out yourself as a spouse. Um, and they will point to, codependency will point to working too many jobs, uh, not engaging in self-care, um, not enough focus on myself, too much focus on the addict. They will talk about all that, but they'll talk about it as a pathology, as, a, as something wrong. And I will say that when a partner is doing these things, they're just doing the best they can. And I want to validate the best they can with a big pat on the back and a big hug. And then let's look together at how we can do it differently because I'm not interested in the, especially in the first, again, the first 90 days of treatment or so, I am not interested in that partner's early history unless it is so profoundly in the way, you know, they're so profoundly traumatized that they absolutely have to. But most partners really just want to look at the situation they're in and figure out how to make it better. And when we start to talk to them about their history or them being the problem, because they feel remorse, they start to think, well, maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe there's something wrong with me. It's demoralizing to partners and it's not encouraging. So I completely validate the desire that the codependency field has and had to help our partners of addicts set better boundaries, take better care of themselves and find healthier ways to interact with the addict. But I am not willing to go along with the idea that they need to learn these things because there was ever something wrong with them. I'm going to say they need to learn these things because you're working with an addict and an addict's a crazy person and we don't all know how to help a crazy person. So let me work with you on how to help your crazy person and love them in a way that's effective. And I think by changing the lens, that's all. From changing the lens, from let's look at you and your problem, which I think is confrontational to a lens that is invitational, pro-dependence, which says, God, you've loved this person with the best ability you can, and I'm so sad that all of your love and care didn't make it better, but let me celebrate your love and really try to help you make it better without looking at anything from your past. I think that people feel comfortable with that, and they feel like they're being treated for what they came there for. I've seen too many partners of addicts walk out and never come back to treatment because they've been told there's something wrong with them. And, you know, even if there is something wrong with them, it is not the time to bring it up in the first 60 to 90 days of treatment. That person needs to get, you know, everything we know about crisis counseling says the following. If someone comes to you in a crisis, don't explore their past. Don't uh, look at what they've been doing wrong. Don't challenge their thinking because people in a crisis can't take all of that in. When people are in a crisis, they need simple direction, support, um, validation, and hope. And that's what I hope to give them with prodependence. So Tammy, um, I have a feeling there's just a lot more to talk about prodependence. And, you know, it's just not an easy topic to talk about. And Lord knows we've been living with codependency for 35 years. It's hard to move beyond that so quickly. So why don't we plan a part two? Like let's you and I do a, co- a prodependence part two discussion. And in a week or two, we can throw that up and people can hear that. I think that sounds like a great idea. Thank you so much, Tammy, for being my partner in crime, which means my partner in healing, because that's what we're all about at Seeking Integrity. Exactly. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. 
There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.